Welcome to the Better Call Daddy Show, the number one podcast where we admit no matter what happens, daddy has the advice we need to fix our problems. Introducing my dad, Mr. Wayne Friedman. That was good. It would be nice if you could also sing a song. What would the song be? You love Paris in the springtime. I just made up some words to it. I love Rena in the springtime. I love Rena in the fall. <laughs> That's right. That's good enough. <laughs> oh boy. Let's dive in. Today's guest found out at 18 that she had two other siblings. She's battled societal rules, sobriety, and a suicide attempt. Kate, welcome. I totally want to start with the fact that you learned you had a brother and sister at 18. Yes, so that was not a fun day. I remember my mom coming into my bedroom and she's crying and i'm assuming she's crying because you know her little girls become a woman and you know reached 18. and no it turns out that i had a brother named william and that william was about to land i think in like newark new jersey or something like that and we had to meet him and i'm like what are you talking about i don't have a brother and you know she goes on to explain that not only do i have a brother but i also have a sister named kate so that was a shocker it's interesting because my father has a daughter her name is hatsabe in cuba and the reason why she's not here with us in the united states is because you know she ended up finding her husband and having children and you know she just has ties there that won't let her leave um, but i always knew about her and I never heard about William or Kate. So, well, once the initial shock wore off and then I, I meet him, I think, I want to say it was that afternoon that I met him. You know, I, I felt uncomfortable because I felt like the daughter that my mother chose, you know, it was almost like she just abandoned them. And I wasn't sure how to feel about that because I didn't really have the best relationship with my mother growing up to begin with. So. I think I was really worried about how they were feeling, how I would be received. And I think the strangest thing, you know, aside from the fact that I found out that I had a pair of siblings I had no idea about, was that they knew about me their entire lives. And I was only just starting to learn about them. Yeah. <laughs> so did she have conversations with them when you were like at other places? So from what I understand, she had always talked to them and if she were speaking to the Philippines or you know calling folks from the Philippines she'd just kind of use a blanket statement of she's calling her family and I guess my father didn't really think anything of it and I don't speak Tagalog I speak Spanish so I, I never understood what she was saying it was a lot of letter writing also she's pretty old school that way and yeah, I mean, I think that for a long time, my father at least thought that these were her nieces and nephews or like a part of the niece and nephew crew. How did your father and mother meet? So they have a really funny story. I mean, I wouldn't call it a funny story. I think it's just a, a different story. I feel when I look back on my parents' history that I live a very comfortable life, a very boring life. My father was a political prisoner in Cuba, as was my grandfather, Antonio. And he was released from jail early, you know, on good behavior or something like that in the 80s when, you know, they were releasing all of the folks from jail in Cuba. His reasons were, I think I mentioned political. He had the opportunity to either come to the United States or to go to Spain since he has Spanish roots. And my tia Leo, my great, aunt she was living in spain where she worked at a hospital with my mother filipino nurse huh i think that's kind of like a stereotype <laughs> anyway my dad ended up you know opting for spain being kind of the smart man that he is he doesn't speak or didn't speak at the time in any english so he's like okay well i'd rather go to spain and tia leo went up to my mom and was like hey here you have a spare bedroom do you think that you could give my my nephew the room for a while. It could only be temporary if, you know, it doesn't work out. And my mom, she was a hustler. You know, she she loved to save money wherever she could. So she's like, well, if you pay some of that rent, fine. So they were roommates in Spain and they weren't in Madrid, though they were close. 
but yeah, that's how they met. They were roommates. And when she was having issues with her citizenship there, my father, knowing that he'd get amnesty in the United States, brought her over. And then they started their life in the good old U.S. of A. How long was your father a political prisoner? From our conversations, it couldn't have been more than three or four years. But my grandfather, Antonio, who passed away seven years ago, he was incarcerated for, I believe, 25 years. So my father didn't grow up with my grandfather around. And it was also for political reasons. Have you talked to your dad about what it was like to be in prison? He definitely doesn't like to talk about it. I think that, I don't think they were fun times, I'll tell you that, but it's hardened him and which I, I mean, I think that it's really similar with other um, Cuban Americans that I know seeing their parents who have gone through, you know, the communist regime, just how it changed their political views. You know, they tend to lean right. Uh, they tend to always abide by rules and, and things like this. And I think in his case, it might have to do with not wanting to get in trouble and not wanting to ruffle feathers and things like that. But yeah, no, he, he never really shared the experience with me and neither did my grandfather. I remember uh, my father doesn't have a tattooed you know, number on his wrist, but my grandfather did. And I always was curious about it. But the Fernandez men, they just, uh, they're tight lipped when it comes to their own personal issues, but they love talking about every other issue out there. Yeah. So tell me about your childhood. I think it's weird that I don't remember a lot of it. When I think about my childhood, they're bits and pieces and the way that I remember them are kind of like clips and movies you know those memory reels and movies where it's just kind of flashing like you know there's a moment where I'm running in the rain with my mom and giggling and we get upstairs to our fifth floor apartment and she's having an asthma attack and the day just gets so sour after such a beautiful moment I actually had a conversation with someone about this the other day about childhood memories, not remembering things. And I sometimes wonder if I've repressed stuff. I wouldn't say I had a rough childhood. I was an only child. My, my parents were the type of people that wanted to make sure that they lived within their means. And I think it was the reason why they only had me. Well, until I was 18, I learned that it wasn't just me. But, you know, within our family, I was an only child. They were very strict. They would make me read out of the dictionary at the end of every school day. And if they didn't spell five words correctly, I would have to, you know, write definitions down over and over again. They were super hard on me when it came to school, which actually backfired on them. Because while I know that I am intelligent and I felt I was a really smart kid, this constant pressure, it didn't give me the passion for school that I think they wished that I had. My mother was harsh, and I hate saying things like she was abusive, but she did hurt me physically. I remember jumping on a bed. I think I was seven years old, and my mother was infuriated, and I, I didn't know why, and I, I thought it might be a joke, and I mean, she tried to throw me out of the fifth floor window. And my father had to grab her and she ended up breaking the window with her, you know, by banging against it with her wrists and had to go to the hospital. And I just didn't understand what I did wrong. I didn't understand why I would get physically hit for nothing, for not pushing a chair in a dining table or anything, you know, just crazy things. I remember when I was 13 years old, I'm blind as a bat, I wear contact lenses. And um, at the time I was 13, 14, I didn't wear contact lenses, I had glasses. And I'm, you know, I'm to the point where if the glasses fall to the ground and, you know, they're a certain color in which, and I think at the time they were like black wireframe glasses, I can't see them. <laughs> so I remember running late for school and she was so upset and she had been cooking something that morning and she had a knife to my neck. And I had to grab the phone, the home phone, and I was trying to reach my father. And I had to basically like hit her arm to get her off of me. And it was a terrible, terrible moment for me because 
I, you know, you don't want to hit your mother, but you also don't want to get your throat sliced because you can't see your glasses and you're just running late for school, which was, by the way, like four blocks away. That was difficult. <laughs> I, I think that maybe part of the reason why I don't remember that much is because a lot of my childhood was sprinkled with these moments. But in the past few years, I've definitely come to understand that, you know, we grow up and we don't realize that our parents are human beings and that they have all of this trauma that they carry around with them. And depending on the generation, my mom's generation, she was older, they weren't conditioned to take care of their mental health or to ask these types of questions and reflect on why they may be reacting in certain ways. And, you know, later in life, she was really kind and it turned around for us, thankfully. But if I'm being honest, I never got over the resentment that I felt over, you know, what had transpired. That would be really hard <laughs> to get over. What? Oh my God. I have a son with a really high prescription, actually, and I, it was my first son, so I didn't realize that he was blind as a bat until like three years old. It wasn't until I realized, because I was taking pictures of him, and he was looking off to the side, like he would never look at me straight. I should have honestly realized when he was learning how to walk, he would run down the driveway and then fall flat on his face, like on uneven surfaces, Mm -hmm. and he... Mm -hmm has like the eyes of an 80 year old. Yeah. <laughs> I was prone to falling quite a bit as a kid, but um, they, I think I was in the first grade when I just wasn't writing on any lines, any lines. I couldn't see them. I had no idea what they were talking about. They're like, right on the line. I'm like, I am writing on the line. Meanwhile, it's this like diagonal situation. So I started wearing them at, I want to say five or six glasses, but they were really thick then. What's funny is that my parents say that they didn't give me braces because they didn't want people to make fun of me for having Coke bottle glasses. But now I have a snaggle tooth that I can't get rid of. (laughs) And I'm just like, you know, I would have been fine if you, you know, I was already bullied growing up. Just why didn't you give me the braces? (laughs) It's funny because I always wanted braces because I have like a little uh, space in between my two front teeth. And now I'm like, maybe I should do that inline thing. (laughs) Have you thought about that? Oh my gosh, you have perfect teeth. I don't think that's they'll fix them. It's like a serious snaggletooth situation. Nobody notices, but I actually have three front teeth. (laughs) No, you don't. I do. And it's when I tell people that they notice because it's not too noticeable, but I always smile on my left side of the face and everybody, you know, it's just like the good side. And it's not the good side for any other reason, except for the fact that it makes it look like I got a normal mouth. Okay. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So you told me that you had a hard time communicating with your mom have you ever asked her what her past life was like? I did, but I don't know what it is about my parents. They just were never the type of people that opened up and wanted to talk about much. What I do know is that her mother was extremely hardworking, had nine children, died in childbirth at the age of like 37. So she was having kids early. My mother waited for me, but William and Kate, I believe, came from a teenage pregnancy that the family hid, which, you know, later kind of made me understand why she was okay with hiding it because she had been hiding it her whole life because it was such a shameful thing in her supremely Catholic Filipino family. I do know that her mother was also abusive. So I don't think that she saw her behavior as wrong. I think that she just saw this behavior as being what a mother does. And I remember her telling me a story about her mother disciplining her brother and that her mother took a stiletto heel and like hit him over the head with the heel and that blood was spewing out. And it wasn't weird to her. I'm like, you know, I'm just like, this is insane. So I guess in her mind, I wasn't getting it as bad as she might have. I think that they, you know, knelt in rice and stuff like that. I do also know that growing up, they were very well off. But when her mother passed away in childbirth, her father, who had a drinking problem and was a ladies' man, didn't really pull any weight and just kind of let their home become decrepit, didn't care about the family, and everybody had to fend for themselves. And that's how she eventually found herself in Spain. Who raised your two siblings? I've never asked that question, and I have no idea. 
but I know that Kate, which is super awkward. My name is Catherine, but I go by Kate and I go by Kate because my mother called me Kate growing up. I had other family members that called me Kathy. Some people call me Kathy and I want to murder them because I hate Kathy. <laughs> um, but, but it was strange to meet Kate, my sister on Zoom. So it was strange to meet Kate number two or the, the Kate before me, but she's in the Philippines. All I know is that Kate is now in India with her husband and her two children who have a great head of hair, let me tell you. And William, my brother, he's in the Philippines with his family and he took over the old house. What are the differences between your Filipino family and your Cuban family? I think, well, I don't really know my Filipino family. And on my Cuban side, I only know a handful of them. I have a weird family dynamic, I would say, compared to other Cubans and Filipinos. When a lot of people think about Filipino families and Cuban families, I think they think about lots of people being around and, you know, there being a a get together every weekend and everybody's eating pork and all this stuff. And at my home, it was just me, my mom, my dad, and that's it. I think my parents felt like black sheep when they came to the United States because the only family that my father had here, they had come from Cuba when they were much younger and they were definitely way more assimilated to the culture and Americanized. I did spend a lot of time with my aunt, Sarah. She's not related to me by blood, but she's married to my uncle and my cousin, Kristen, who was like the sister that I guess I never had, that I always wanted to have. But eventually, you know, as I started getting older and my parents started getting older and it wasn't, you know, playdate age, we grew apart. I do keep in touch with my family. Like I love my cousins and, you know, I mean, I don't talk to them as often, but I was in her wedding several years ago and, and things like that. But I, uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say how they differ from each other considering I don't really have kind of a good example of what either side of my family is like because of my parents being such loners. Okay, that was a good transition into something that you've been talking about on your Instagram. You talked about today moving on from friendships and growing apart from people. Can we talk about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's a good segue. Go me, go you. Because I was an only child and because my parents weren't really family people, I tended to attach myself to people, like to my friends. You know, I I get overly invested in my friendships and I think it's very unhealthy, or at least it used to be super unhealthy. I also, I mean, years ago I was a I was a really harsh person to to be friends with because I expected a certain level of loyalty and I expected a certain level of interaction and, and all the stuff. And if I didn't get it, it was like, I don't understand. You don't want to be my friend, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, I recently have been sharing my personal stories on Instagram, which has been interesting to say the least and, and very cringy for me because it makes me feel very vulnerable. And one of them was being dumped by a friend who you know, I honestly did not see it coming. And I know that I'm the type of person that is avoidant when I'm going through, you know, the emotions of life and and the issues that we're all having. I am either, I'm excessive, right? So I'm either extremely anxious and in need of a shoulder to cry on and reach out and tell you that I need help, or I'm very avoidant and I'm not talking or seeing anyone to anyone. I'm not talking to anyone. I'm not seeing anyone. I'm not getting out of bed. I'm not living life. And I didn't realize how those behaviors were tarnishing my relationships with people. I also going back to, Oh, when people don't, you know, when people didn't do whatever, you know, when they didn't match my energy in a relationship, I would get so upset. I didn't realize that I had to be concerned with other people feeling like, you know, maybe they needed more physical time with me or time with me physically rather, because I'm not that person. I, I mean, I have friends that I've never even met in person. I mean, you are a friend that I've actually never met in person, but 
I don't feel weird talking to you or, you know, reaching out if I needed to for anything. This particular friend, she definitely was not like that. <laughs> um, and I had no idea. And I really wish that she would have said something to me. I wish that she would have told me what it was that she needed. But then, you know, can you blame her? Maybe she didn't even know herself that that's what she needed. So yeah, I mean, I touched on it a bit. It wasn't very eloquent. I don't think it's really eloquent right now. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, I've been thinking a lot about friendships. I've been thinking a lot about interactions with others and just opening your mouth and saying what you need. It's a lot harder than we want to admit, I think. I am so glad that you're getting cringy. And I actually see myself in you because I have that excessiveness in my own self. I have trouble letting go of friendships, like knowing when they're over and moving on yeah. from them sometimes. And I've, I've been there where like, mm -hmm. you still think that your college bestie like wants to hear everything and she's got yeah. her own stuff going Thanks. on. Yeah. Thank you. I'm glad that someone else feels this way. I'm just like, I don't, I was just like, I don't get it. Our relationship changed. Like, yeah, I don't know. What? Wow. Yeah. I mean, sharing it and hearing back from people, I've gotten a lot of messages from folks that have been experiencing the same thing lately. And I think right now quarantine time is probably, I mean, obviously hard on romantic relationships, but I don't think we realize that they're just as hard on friendships because there are people that might be going through so much more than we know on the surface. And my problem is just like, I assume that you're going to tell me because I'm like that. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I spew out everything. So if you didn't spew it out, like tough shit is probably what I would have acted like in the past. And now I'm like, okay, I need to reconsider how I will, you know, you know, if I really want to keep this relationship going, I need to realize when people are telling me that I'm fine, like everything's cool, I'm just down, like whether or not that's really what's happening or if I need to dig in deeper. But I also feel like everybody needs to help each other out. <laughs> I love that you also tied it to love languages and I have the same love language as you, which is also Yay. interesting. <laughs> I need words of affirmation. And I've told my husband that I'm like, even if you have to lie, say them. Lie. I've literally said that too. Yep. You know, I do wish that the love languages, that there were different ones. Like if there was like a career language and a friendship language, you know, in career, I'm very much words of affirmation as well. And it's kind of also unhealthy, I think. <laughs> but, you know, my day, my week, if my CEO is unhappy with the performance that I'm giving, it really just messes up my vibe and I am inconsolable. But with friendship, I don't really need much of anything. I just need loyalty, right? Like I need to know that if I call on you, you're going to be there. That's what I need. And I haven't seen anything. Actually, after I posted that video, I went online and I tried to look up if there were friendship languages and there weren't. So Someone's got to do it. <laughs> maybe Someone's it should be you. Maybe. Maybe I should. I think you should. And you brought up another point here. So here's another good segue. You talked about unhealthiness. And I know the other subject matter in which you were covering on your Instagram was sobriety. So can you tell yeah. me about that? So I have always been a lush. I started drinking, I want to say, at the age of like 15 years old. You know, in high school, you obviously can't really get your hands on too much alcohol. But early on, I graduated high school at like 17 years old. And starting from like 17 to two months ago, <laughs> I was drinking so heavily that I was blocking out on a regular basis. And something I'm definitely not proud of. But it was also something that I didn't think was a problem because of the people that I was surrounding myself with. And not to say that any of those people are bad. I mean, I still surround myself with people. I still love them all the same. I don't judge them for drinking. But I know that for me, it was becoming a problem and it was becoming a crutch, especially in the past 18 months or so. I've not been well emotionally. And I didn't realize it until it all came to a head in June. I think a lot of people don't want to recognize that they have a problem and I was one of them. 
when you're stressed out, you go and you drink. When you're happy, you go and you drink. When you're having dinner, you go and you drink. And unfortunately, I have just never built healthy, a healthy relationship with alcohol. It was never a, oh, I'm going to have a glass or two of wine. It was, let's kill this bottle of wine and get two more and maybe a bottle of Patron and kill that in a night. And I now think that's insane. I'm sure that my tolerance is way low now. I was worried about talking about sobriety because I didn't want to sound like one of those people that were like, rah, rah, sobriety, you can only be sober. But for me, it's really been life-changing because it hurts so much. And I don't think that that's something that most people say <laughs> when it comes to sobriety. What hurts about it is not that I want to drink. It's that I can feel my feelings, that I hear the voices, and that there's no distraction, that there's no way out of whatever it is that I'm feeling. And I need that. A little over two months ago, before I you know, was alcohol-free, I literally played an entire game of Jenga and I had no idea and nobody thought I was blacked out. Like when you are functioning at, you know, you're functioning in front of everyone, you're having full on conversations, you're playing board games, you're maybe hopping on a train, you're maybe going to that next bar, you're going to another party and you have no idea that you did it. That's scary, you know? And then the feelings that you get are even scarier. So I haven't discussed this and I wasn't sure if I was going to discuss this on my Instagram or anywhere, but I'm going to do it. So June 9th, I tried to commit suicide by walking onto a highway. And I was thankfully found by my boyfriend who had received a text message from a concerned friend. And I had been drinking all day. And I don't know... I know what came over me. I know what feelings I was feeling, but the reaction to those feelings were so exasperated by the drinking. I remember just worrying that everybody was judging me for having come back to the East Coast, worrying that my boyfriend's family was thinking, you know, that I only came back to be with him here because it was my only resort, which it wasn't. I had options. But, um, you know, I was worried that everybody was going to think I was a failure because I'm not currently working. I was worried that my life was completely over because my career was over. And I, it's not over, but, you know, my, my job had ended. <laughs> and I felt like a part of me died and I didn't know who I was anymore. And, you know, anytime I ran into anybody, it was the same question. What are you doing for work? Why did you come back? How do you like being home? And it's just, you know, as much good as there was around, it didn't feel good. I didn't feel like me. And I had been binging on alcohol so much that I think I just completely clouded myself from reality and from separating myself from what I was feeling and these intense feelings of hatred for myself and for just my position that I just felt hopeless and I felt like nobody understood. And I reached out to a friend who I became very close with when I was in Los Angeles. And I knew that she had history of having friends who were committing or have committed suicide. So I guess in my drunken stupor, I felt that I should reach out to her. And, you know, it's like, I'm going to do it. You know, just don't tell Eddie. I, I don't want him to know how unhappy I am. Oh, my gosh, I think I'm going to cry. <laughs> Whew, I don't want him to know how unhappy I am. And her response, I know that it, she didn't mean to say it this way, or she didn't mean for me to react the way that I did to it. But her response made me feel very much like, don't pull me into your suicide talk, you know? The day that it happened, we had been at a family barbecue, his family, social distanced, of course. And we're in the car and I'm watching him drive and I write a poem in just all my sadness. And it was something like, being, like I was looking at the clouds and I was like, the clouds are hanging off invisible spread. Uh, beckoning the guppies who has ne who had never seen the light of daybreak over water or something like that. And it just felt like 
death would be so beautiful and it would be such a beautiful release to not have to deal with the questions, the same fucking questions all the time. And I mean, that's when I was texting her and all that. We ended up getting home and unsatisfied with the response that I received from her, I was very obviously upset and I start crying hysterically and I'm looking at Eddie and I'm just like, I'm just so sad. I just want to die. I just want to die screaming it. And he was drinking just as much as I was. He's actually also on the sober train, the alcohol-free train. And, you know, he was pretty drunk and he was caught off guard. He's known me for nearly 11 years now and he's never seen me talk like this and so his reaction was kind of angry and it was you know why are you saying this you have such a beautiful life you know I love you you have friends that love you you have a family that loves you how dare you say this and then that you know pushed me over the edge where I felt so guilty and here I am bearing my soul and another person just doesn't understand. Like, I don't want to feel this way. This is just the way that I feel. And this is the way that I felt for such a long time. And it's just so much pressure to be that person that everybody says is such a light. You light up the room. You are so happy. And it's, you know, it's true. I am so happy, but just as happy as I am, I'm so deeply sad and I don't know why. So. I decided to be sober <laughs> because I want to reset my relationship with alcohol, but I also really need to feel these feelings and understand the root of them. And if there is a way for me to fix it on my own, or if I need medication for my severe anxiety and for my depression. So it's definitely been a journey and it's, it's been difficult because it hurts it hurts every day to feel like this and not be able to share because everybody wants you to be okay you know your friends don't want you to say that I feel exactly the same way that I did that day every day it's just a matter of how I'm reacting to those feelings that's the only thing that I can change so yeah I hate that Sorry. question <laughs> when people ask you so what are you doing for work? And all of yeah. those questions that you were asked when you moved back are really hard questions to answer. I wish people could be more considerate. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but you know, um, it's not anyone's fault. And how would they have known that this would have been the reaction, right? I'm, I'm learning now, though, that a lot of it is about you know, I, I don't think that the reaction that I have necessarily is, is an incorrect one. I do think that it's more just like, you know, everything that I'm talking about on Instagram right now, everything that I'm saying is normal. And the more that I'm talking about these things and the more that people are reaching out to me telling me that they're having the same experiences, the more normal I feel and the better that I'm starting to feel. My problem is once I start feeling those things, it's like, what do I do next, right? So in the past, it was actually violence. <laughs> so in the past, I, and I don't think anybody really sees me like this. Like if you, there are only a handful of people that have seen me kind of turn that switch on. And I think it was learned behavior from what I mentioned earlier with my mother and how, you know, there were, there were these times in my life that there was violence from her and, and that specific time about the glasses and stuff. And, having to kind of defend myself, I started learning early that if you are angry and violent and like brash, like you can protect yourself because people don't want to deal with you. And then a few years ago, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to like go to jail one day if I continue this behavior. I can't do this. I'm like a grown woman who is a professional. So, you know, I, I started, that's really when all of this soul searching started this journey of like forgiveness and acceptance that I'm only now kind of sharing with people started four years ago, but I wasn't ready to let go of the alcohol. I wasn't ready to, to feel what I'm feeling. What would you tell someone who's struggling with alcohol? I guess it depends on the level at which that they're, you know, like what it is that they're struggling with. I was definitely more of a binge drinker and I did it socially. 
I didn't rely on alcohol to get through my day. I wasn't drinking, you know, in the morning and then heading off to work or anything like that. It was kind of more, it was just an everyday thing, but it wasn't an everyday, like every second of the day thing. Right. So if I were talking to someone that was like me, who was a working professional who seemed to have it all together, but kept finding themselves in a situation, I mean, I would highly suggest or trying what I'm doing, which is I'm staying alcohol free up until the end of the year. I gave myself an end date because I don't know if this is something that I want to be forever. I mean, I definitely want to continue this journey, but girl, I like my orange wine and I like my scotch. And I'm like, you know, I, I didn't always just drink to drink and get drunk. Like I actually enjoy a cocktail and I enjoy, you know, the best balance of flavors and that and pairing my food with my wine and having a cocktail, um, a light cocktail <laughs> with an appetizer and things like that. But, you know, I think that my, my advice is like examine your relationship with alcohol and ask yourself, are you drinking in excess because, you know, you just got carried away and it was just so much fun and everything was fine? Or are you drinking in excess because you're actually super deeply sad? And there's something going on now that I'm not drinking and I, you know, still chill and hang out with people that, I mean, I don't chill and hang out with people that drink. We're not really going out, but on like Zoom, for example, or I've been to like socially distanced, like barbecue situations. I do see behavior in others that was so similar to my behavior. And, you know, it's just, and it's, it's just scary because I'm, I'm watching someone and they look so much like me, you know, that person that doesn't want to leave, um, doesn't want us to like turn off the chat or doesn't want to leave the place or, you know, they're just like, no, no, just another one. Or, you know, they're bringing beers in their car for the drive home, but they're already belligerent. I was that person. And there is this line that I see crossed where someone starts talking a lot about their personal drama or issues like trauma bonding so it's like drunk trauma bonding and that's when I kind of have a red flag and I feel like wow maybe I should say something but I don't want this to be overseas because I know a lot of people don't appreciate you know the concern because it's embarrassing I mean if someone came up to me last year and would have told me that I needed to, to slow it down on the drinking, I would have told them politely to go fuck themselves. And be like, I don't have a problem. Like, what's your problem? Like, you're whack. <laughs> like, you know, and no, what's whack is drowning yourself in alcohol and not realizing that the only reason why you're doing it is because you're running away from yourself. What is an okay way of approaching somebody that you're concerned about? Honestly, I do not have the answer for that because in my case, nobody could have said anything to me that wouldn't have made me upset. And I mean, maybe that's just my own character flaw. I'm bullish. I'm like this. Maybe other people would respond well. I think, you know, if, if you have to say something, say it. I, I mean, there is no right or wrong way. Like, I think just say it and say it as delicately as you can and not you know, in a judgy tone, maybe examples, because most of us don't remember anything. So the night that I tried to commit suicide, I, my boyfriend found me, um, as I mentioned, he got a text from my friend and called the cops and they admitted me to the hospital involuntarily. And I was seething. I looked at him and with poison in my mouth, I looked at him and I was like, I will never forgive you for this. And I did forgive him for that, by the way, but I, I remember lying in, you know, the ER because they didn't have any space in the, sky, uh, the psych ward where they had to bring me up. And I hated him. If I'm being honest, it was not helpful at all to me, at least. The only thing that it did was make me feel really disgusted over the mental health care system in the United States. <laughs> I came out of there so upset over having, you know, been fortunate to, to leave within three or four days instead of, you know, weeks, like some of the other people that were there. And definitely some of the people that were there definitely, like, you know, needed the support and they needed the, 
to help, but I felt like it was a very cold environment. I felt like the nurses there talked to you like you were crazy, you know? And I, you know, I wasn't there because I have anything other than severe anxiety and depression. And I was going through something, but they looked at me like I was nothing. And, you know, they, they just kind of leave you there, tell you to color some children coloring book pages and that's your art therapy. I don't think that I talked to a therapist for more than 45 minutes in total the entire time that I was there. So, I mean, I did feel resentful towards him for having done that, but the time in there allowed me to dry out because I had been really drunk that night and it allowed me to examine that relationship that I have with alcohol and why the heck I was in there in the first place. And I'm, I, I guess I'm grateful for that, but I will say, unless the person that is in the situation I was in has a weapon or is hurting others, I wouldn't call the cops and, and admit them involuntarily into the hospital. I would maybe chain them to a damn tree and leave them outside until, you know, the next morning and then bring them to a therapist or something. I don't recommend involuntarily putting people on psych wards. I'm going to admit something to you. My dad has gone through that with his sister. Yeah. The exact same situation. She tried to kill herself. She was an alcoholic. She was addicted to drugs. She probably wouldn't even want me sharing this, but she was admitted to a psych ward and my dad had to sign her out. Yeah. Um, and she has attempted more than one time. And the second time she fell in a position which injured herself. And she has something called like, I think it's called club foot now where like, mm. you know what I'm saying? I, I forgot exactly, yeah. but she has trouble walking and you know, she's in her, her forties, late forties. She's like nine years older than me. And she's permanently injured from it. Did she ever talk to you about her experience there? I know that it was similar. Mm-hmm. That like she, just not helpful. Not helpful. She was freaking pissed off. It's it's a very tough situation. But I agree with you. I think that she has to want to change. Mm-hmm. And you know, she struggled with drugs and alcohol for a long time. Here's what I'll say to you, and I've also said to her, you know, if you ever want to call me and just vent, I'll listen, and you have an open, you know, opportunity to do that, and I am glad that you're here, and I'm glad that that didn't happen. I know many people that struggle with this, and you're not alone. I mean, I feel like I'm definitely getting better. I think the not drinking is something that's actually very helpful, and, you know, just taking care of myself and doing all of this reflection. I don't have the desire to drink, but the pain is still there, you know? And so that's just something that I I don't know how to get over. I'm trying so hard not to look at hospital bills and look at them as a form of punishment for being alive, for example. That's just the worst, you know? You're trying to get better. You're like, you went to a place that you didn't even want to go to. Nobody treated you with an ounce of kindness. And then on top of it all, you come home where, you know, you were left with not much of a treatment plan whatsoever to start receiving the ambulance bill and the hospital stay bill and the lab bill. And you're just like, is this punishment for being alive? Like, I don't know. And one of the common themes that people were talking about while I was there was that they felt like they were purposely trying to make you crazy so that you would stay. And obviously there were some people there that had paranoia and schizophrenia, you know? So, but it was just interesting to hear that because I think on like the fourth day, I started to really believe it. Like you, you know, you're like, wow, it's, it's like almost like they're conditioning me to be this robot. And I know that this is probably, you know, this isn't what I mean to do, but this is how it felt. I'm not trying to like rag on the poor folks there. I didn't meet some nice people, but it's just a broken system. But you start to think like, oh, wow. So in society, I have to play this game and I have to act like everything is okay. And I have to play by these rules or they're going to put me back in here. 
I don't think that's a way to help people with who have mental health issues. I don't think that's a way to kind of like help them or uplift them or, you know, it's just putting a band-aid on top of it or putting this like facade, like, oh, I'm okay, everything's fine. I'm a healthy member of society now because I went to the loony bin and I'll, now I know how to act. But I wanna know how to be. I wanna know how to like live with myself the way that I am. I don't wanna know how to act. I don't wanna like make people think that I'm a way that I'm not, that I'm just like normal. It's really hard. But I do think that getting sober is definitely a step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Me too. And it's been, it's been fun. I mean, mocktails, I've been drinking a lot of non-alcoholic beer. Everybody's like, how much weight have you lost since you've been sober? I'm like zero. Cause I still drink carbs, you know, like I'm still drinking my fake beers and they have just as many carbs as the real shit. <laughs> I think it's crazy that that's the first question that people ask me. <laughs> it's like, Oh, how much weight have you lost? Um, I think I'm going to get into like body image I wanted to thank you so much for opening up to me and getting cringy and being vulnerable. And like I said, if I can ever help you or introduce you to anyone, I have a lot of people in my network and I will give you my phone number. Truthfully, I will just listen and try to help. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. I did not think you have a secret gift, man. You just make me talk. Um, So that's really nice. But yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. It's like, I feel super special and cool. Yeah, I'm like not really anybody. So that's, it was fun. You're beautiful. You're wonderful. And like I said, I'm so glad you're here. And I am here for you. So take me up. I will listen to you. Alrighty. Have a good time on your next call. Thank you so much. So daddy, what did you think? Well, this is uh, quite an interesting interview with Kate number two, even though to you it's Kate number one. I thought the whole story was just incredible because obviously I saw a lot of similarities. I have a sister, Jill, who has got a lot of messed up problems. I like what Kate said. It's really, she has to find her own way out of it all. And just because you want her to act a certain way, or you're trying to give her, whether it's education, whether it's to give her understanding, whether it's to try to put her in a better environment, unless she chooses to take those steps until she chooses to find a path forward, you can help her all you want, but it's going to be to no avail because you can't bring someone along down a path if they don't believe in it or they don't want it. You just can't do it. And if you don't make some positive results from your efforts, you're basically whoever is helping you is really just wasting their time. Wow, that's a pretty harsh truth. It, it really is. But look at the interesting thing is that she ended up being a third child of her mom. She didn't even know she had two other siblings because she came over with her father to this country where they both were on a mission to escape political persecution of Cuba. And the fact is, is that where her father helped her get into this country also, doesn't it make sense? You come to this country, you have a baby together, and you try to make a new life and leave the old life behind, even though you have different sets of roots. And yet certain roots that you've already established hard to live a separate life. So it's almost like she names her third child after the first child because she's really lost the first child in her mind. She can't live, really live her life with that child. So she names the second child the same name as the first child, like it's a new beginning. And in Jill's case, she is really a replacement child for two lost brothers that my mom had. The truth of the matter is, is that her own individual person, and yet wanting a brother and wanting another son, she certainly falls far short for that desired outcome. And yet, She had all kinds of issues with her weight and with her neediness. She was always being picked on. She was always being put off to the side and never really accepted by anybody. And isn't the same thing hold true with this girl where she had to wear glasses or or she needed braces and, and was always bullied and picked on? 
and also couldn't really find kind of encouragement and positive activity around her where she was always the exception to everything going on. Her grandfather, also a political prisoner for 25 years and with drinking problems, with her mom, also from a large family where she was also abused as a, as a child. She continues some of that abuse to her. So this strong need that people need to have encouragement and love, she didn't really experience that. She was really out of place. I don't know how else to say it. She's out of place. My sister Jill is also out of place. She doesn't really have that so-called, in quotes, that's brought up in this interview, a normal path or a normal relationship. She's the exception to all of the rules that you might want to set for a child, where everything that can go wrong with somebody has gone wrong with both of these girls. They are also a replacement for a past life or, or a past loss of life or a past sister or brother, hoping that they can make a new life and a new person will erase the roots of the past. And as again, it's very hard to escape that. Today's episode is sponsored by Rin 10 Media. If you want to look and sound your best for a podcast of your own, you want to get in touch with Rin 10 Media. When I first contacted them, Better Call Daddy was just a twinkle in my daddy's eye. And now, only after a couple months in, we're at like 50 episodes. Reach out to info at ren10media.co.za and use the subject line, Better Call Daddy. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and tune in. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Yeah. <laughs>